Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does when we record podcasts, because, hey, what else are we going to do? That would be senior writer Jonathan Strickland. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> All right, then. Welcome yeah. to part two of our GE extravaganza. If you're just joining us, uh, five or no, sorry, four people founded GE and yeah. uh, based on, on a, um, a merger – between two companies. Yes, Edison General Electric and Thomson Houston Electric. Yes. And um, you know, those three guys plus a guy named Charles Coffin, who was a business person who brought the companies together in a merger. And um they went from a uh, a brand new field, um, you know, wiring homes for electricity, lighting homes, uh and and really uh, decided to create a company that could make things that could use electricity and uh, would sell equipment to generate electricity um, and really uh, turned into a, a, a the 800-pound gorilla, as they say in marketing speak, yes. of the electric world. And in, uh, we got all the way up to 1931 in GE's history. That was the year that Thomas Alva Edison died. Mm-hmm. So we pick up in 1932, mm-hmm. when GE formed the GE Credit Corporation, which was to help finance sales of GE products to families. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reason for this is uh, GE had already weathered one major economic depression. Mm-hmm. But now the country was still reeling from the Great Depression, which was not that great. No. It was huge, but it wasn't great. No, no. And uh, in, in the last podcast – uh, several years earlier, we talked about uh, – uh, well, several years earlier in the GE timeline. Right. Not several – yeah. Right. Got it. Um, we, we talked about how GE had started uh, helping companies, financing companies that were starting out. Yeah. Um, and uh, basically to help them uh, get off the ground and hopefully use electricity and buy stuff from them. Yep. Um so uh, this is this is GE getting into a different segment of the financial market. Yes. Um, which uh, again, if you're if you're looking at it on paper, you may say, why would they get into financing? Well, they're they're working in their own business interests as well. Yeah, they're they're financing the sale of their products to people. So you know, there's there's definitely self interest in there, but it also was very helpful to families who sure. needed to have these these sort of appliances uh, in order to. Uh, to have an efficient and cost-effective home. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, you know, a mutually beneficial sort of thing. It's not, we don't want to say that it was completely altruistic, but at the same time, we don't want to say it was some sort of, how can we get those last few pennies out from their clutches? It wasn't either of those things. No, 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 no. Um, and, uh, also in the last podcast, we discussed how, uh, GE had started uh, very early on for the company, really, uh, one of the very first research and development labs um, for corporations because they realized that if they could come up with more cool scientific breakthroughs, um, again, this this is sort of in that same bucket that they could uh, they could come up with things that would help people and that they could monetize and uh, add value to the company. And uh, one of the uh, first things that they could really brag about, um, not that they couldn't 
some of the others, but uh, one of the scientists won a Nobel Prize in that year as well. Yeah, Irving Langmuir, mm-hmm. who won a Nobel Prize uh, for his work in surface chemistry. Yes. And that was the very first United States industrial scientist to win a Nobel Prize. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big bragging point for GE. Uh, skipping ahead a couple of years, in 1935, GE produces the first electric food waste disposal unit. The Disposal. Yes, it was creatively named the Disposal. Uh, yeah, so this is um, – I personally love this kind of invention. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic invention. I have a, I have an electric food waste disposal unit at my house and uh, very useful because mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't have to make a compost heap in my house. I don't live in San Francisco. But uh, yeah, so this was uh, this was definitely one of those inventions introduced to try and make the whole home life more simple and, and clean and efficient, which was kind of like GE's thing. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was their that was their space was that we're going to make your life easier. And here's how mm-hmm. through electricity. Yes. Uh, they also had the very first night baseball game played in the United States thanks to some lights provided by GE. Yes, at you, Crosley Field. Yes, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati Reds versus the Phillies. And who won? The Reds beat the Phillies two to one. Thank you. Awesome. Take that, Phillies. As a Braves fan, I can't say that enough. Take that, Phillies. <laughs> and where's you your wife from? Two again? to one in nineteen thirty. My wife's from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, these were the Nova Lux lamps. Yeah, um, yeah. And Chicago was skeptical of these lamps. I'm, I'm kidding, Chicago. Yeah. Uh, the Cubs were uh, skeptical of these lamps up until I don't know, just a few years ago. <laughs> No, I'm I'm teasing. Um, oh, uh, I, I like how we've suddenly become a baseball podcast. Yeah, no, uh, and uh, they, I just find it kind of interesting that they were so successful that they took off. And uh, the uh, if you're not a baseball fan, if you live in a different part of the world where baseball is sort of a curiosity rather than a national pastime, um, the Chicago Cubs are uh, a team that has been around for a very very long time, and they didn't. Uh, set up electric lights in their ballpark until um, just a few years ago at the time we we're recording this. And I have absolutely no problems with that. I'm just teasing. I actually kind of like the Cubs. Yeah, everyone everyone loves an underdog, right? Oh, yeah. So anyway. Oh, the poor Cubs. Yeah, I know. Uh, 1936. That's when GE starts a, a small appliances division, essentially. I mean, they really get into creating small appliances for the home. Yes. So again, you, if you remember from our last podcast, I talked about how the, uh, the, the president and CEO during this time really wanted to focus on targeting the, the consumer, the mm-hmm. average consumer as a customer for GE. Cause a lot of GE's customers were big companies, not consumers. Right. Um, this was a continuation of that. And they started to make stuff like juicers, roasters, mixers, uh, countertop cookers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You mean like the, uh, juice mat juicer yes. and the, uh, a la carte table cooker? Like if you need to eat a whole table. Yes. I was going to say, if you need to cook your table, Yep, and the uh, Dorchester coffee maker. Yes, um, actually, this is this is kind of interesting. We talked about uh, in the HP series of podcasts. Um, they uh, Hewlett Packard over its history, which is quite a bit shorter than GE's, um, got into a, a number of fields and then later divested themselves of it. Um, as we look at GE, note that they get into a wide range of different. Um, businesses, mm-hmm. but they pretty much are, are working in the same fields that either they created or, um, 
augmented in such a significant way that they are a, a, a big part of them. And really, they didn't let go of a whole lot of this stuff. They continue to be involved in in these. So yeah, there's a there's a few that they did divest themselves of, but we'll but we'll talk like about that. And sometimes some not by others. choice. Well, that's true. His RCA was taken from them. Uh, the United States, who gave it to them in the first place. Stop it. I know. I'm sorry. That was the last podcast. I'm not going to go off on that again. But yes, that is true. GE was more known for developing these different technologies, getting involved in it, and staying with it. Yeah. Um, the, like, they, they were very careful, too, about what they got into. Like, you know, there was, there was a, a, they stressed innovation, but they weren't so much about innovation that they were going to go and embrace something that was unproven. Mm-hmm. Right? They and wanted, I can think of a lot of companies that have done that. Right. Yeah, I mean, in the last podcast I ta- talked about Google, you could argue that Google has done that as well. Yeah. Where they've embraced stuff that wasn't quite proven and not fully baked maybe and it just didn't work out. Maybe for one reason or another. Who, Each one is, is fairly complex. But GE was pretty good about identifying innovative uh, designs that would be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason for the company's success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1937 – uh, the final of the four founders passes away. Uh, mm-hmm. Elihu Thompson. He actually uh, passed away in 1937. Uh, if you had listened to our last podcast, the other three founders had uh, had uh, passed away before this. So now the the four guys who had built the two companies that eventually became General Electric are no more. They mm-hmm. have shuffled off the moral coil. Yep. And uh, in 1936, as we were talking about the uh, different uh, tabletop appliances or uh, kitchen appliances, this is, again, the uh, uh, diversity of GE. Uh, we talked about a guy in the last podcast named Sanford Moss, who at 16 figured out that uh, if you burn fuel in a compressed air environment, you could really put out some energy compared to a typical engine. Uh, that's called the supercharger, if you're familiar with these types of things. Well, Howard Hughes, you know, the uh, Billy Jillionaire with the boxes on his feet. Yes. Uh, set a transcontinental air record, you know, if um, – you know, you're familiar with Mr. Hughes. You know that he was very much into aviation. Yes. Uh, he made it across the country in seven hours, 28 minutes, 25 seconds using that supercharger technology of GE's. Yeah. Pretty I, cool. I have so many jokes I want to tell, but I'm going to, I'm going to abstain. Okay. So in 1938, GE invents the fluorescent lamp. Yeah. They, they were kind enough to wait until, uh, Mr. Edison passed on yes. before they, they invented the fluorescent lamp. Yeah, because, of course, uh, Edison is famous for his work in the incandescent lamp as well as other multiple inventions. How do you fit in there anyway? It's a very tiny space. <laughs> it reminds space. me of another joke that I can't tell. Anyway, the uh, the fluorescent lamp, of course, was a, a new development. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, you would think for a company that was – that was so centered around incandescent lighting yeah. for it to develop fluorescent lighting. That's, that's interesting. Well, it's, it's not the first time, or I mean, sorry, it's not the last time GE will work on a completely different lighting technology. So they, they really weren't uh, married to it. It was more of a joke that I made, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that's significant really when you think about it, they made a, a significant enough improvement in an incandescent light bulb that they were able to really, Make a business out of it. Yeah. And, uh, now they are innovating by creating the fluorescent lamp. Well, and, and again, it, it's something that sets GE apart because you've got companies that will try their hardest to ignore or, or dismiss technologies that would significantly impact their business model by, mm-hmm. by changing whatever it was they were making. So if you've got a company that's making a product and a new way of making a, a new kind of product that competes directly with the old one and is in many ways superior to the old one, mm-hmm. oftentimes that first company is going to resist it. 
in this case, we have a company that's actually innovating in that space because, well, multiple reasons. One of the one of them being that the I, I I assume that the people in charge of GE knew that you can't just innovate and then rest on that. You have to keep pushing in order and keep changing and keep keep growing in order to stay viable as a company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's I mean I'm assuming that I've never I haven't read any of these these men's works directly, so I can't say for sure, but based upon the way the company has grown over the years, I think it's a fairly safe assumption. Uh, corporate body language, you might say. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Burr Blodgett in 1939. Yes, the first female scientist at GE's research laboratory. Hey, you said laboratory. I know. I, I had to think about it, too. <laughs> um, she made – this is <laughs> – I love what they call it uh, because it sounds so uh, – well, duh – uh, invisible glass. That's what Wonder Woman's jet is made out of. <laughs> but uh, no, we're talking about glass that doesn't reflect. It's got a coating on it uh, that preve- pre- prevents the glass from being reflective. And that's very useful in a number of different uh, technologies. And, and basically, it was the forerunner of a lot of the glasses uh, used in different applications today. Yeah, things um, like cameras. Very yeah. useful for a camera lens, also optical lenses in general. Yeah, anti-reflective coatings. Yeah. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you probably have a very tiny bit of that glass or yep. something very much like it. Um, and uh, another chemistry uh, in 1940, silicone. Yes. They got into silicone. Uh, well, actually invented it, really. And it's used in all kinds of things. Yes. Uh, uh, insulating electronics. Yep. It's excellent for that. Um, baking now they use it for that now uh, industrial sealants uh, aquariums yep um, lots and, of different applications and 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 great for uh, advertising what uh, uh, causes you believe in on your wrist if you're so inclined although that's sort of passed out of fashion here wrist strong yes so uh, also in 1940 they created a television station called WRGB in a little town in New York called Schenectady and it was uh, the first television network or grew into the first television network well it was kind of funny to call it that um, you might not necessarily think about it but remember when we talked about um, uh, computer networks we mm-hmm. said that basically a computer standing on on its own is not a network but if you put you know connect another net uh, computer to it, you've created a network. Well, yes, this was a network of two. WRGB uh, was simultaneously broadcasting the same signal that uh, the New York City TV station was. And uh, so in, in doing that, they created their first network. Yep. Pretty cool. And uh, RGB also, also, I think that's kind of funny. Yes. Red, green, and blue being the colors yes. that you see on a computer screen or TV screen. Yeah, of course, in 1940, that's pre- Color TV. I know. That's but, that's uh, the ironic part of it. Yeah. So in 1940, also, that's when uh, Gerard Swope and Charles E. Wilson stepped down for the first time, because this gets complicated, and I'll explain why. So they stepped down in 1940 and uh, uh, from being president and CEO, uh, respectively. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 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 Charles E. Wilson becomes the uh, the president. Uh, by the way, Charles E. Wilson, there are two Charles E. Wilsons that are important during this particular era. One of those Charles E. Wilsons is the CEO of General Motors. The other Charles E. Wilson became the president of, uh, of GE. Uh, and you can cha- tell them apart because the one at, at uh, General Motors was known as Engine Charlie. And the one at GE was known as Electric Charlie. That's kind of funny. I'm not even making that up. Also, when you think about it, General Motors and General Electric, they're both major generals. 
That's true. The very model of a modern major general. Uh, and then Owen D. Young, you know, he stepped down as well. And Philip D. Reed took his place. Now, mm-hmm. that happens in 1940. I'm going to go ahead and explain what happens over the next few years because it's going to get confusing otherwise. So sure. 1940, you have this regime change, essentially. Mm-hmm. In 1942, uh, both... Uh, Charlie Wilson and Philip Reed leave GE. And, oh, knows. And Owen Young and Gerard Swope step back into their roles as uh, CEO and president, respectively. Wait, what? Now, here's what happened. So 1942, there was a little event going on in 1942. It had started a few years earlier, and it was really in full swing by 42, which is World War II. Oh, I thought it was uh, the jitterbug. Uh, World War II. We're going to stick with that. So, yeah, World War II was in full swing. Not, now I see what you're doing there with the jitterbug now. Uh, in 1942. Uh, and both Reed and Wilson left GE to go serve on the United States War Production Board. So they left, oh. they left the company to serve with the United States government on this board. And they were there for three years. So in 1945, when the war came to an end, Swope and Young stepped down again, and Wilson and Reed took their place again as the uh, the CEO and president of the company, or president and CEO, I should say, because Wilson was the president. So, uh, yeah, it's this weird little moment in GE's history where the outgoing president and CEO were replaced. Then they came back in to replace the incoming uh, president and CEO, and then they left for the incoming president and CEO who were coming back again a few years later. But it all had to do with World War II. Confused? You won't be after this episode of Tech Stuff. Yeah, actually, that's never true. So, in the, so that's that. That's the whole confusing little moment in GE's uh, executive history. Moving on, though. So, in 1941, transportation <laughs> strikes again. Well, there's yeah. GE built the IA, which is the very first uh, United States jet engine. Ah, yes. IA. Uh, and then in 1943, GE developed something called autopilot. Ah, well, I, I, you, you skipped 1942, which surprised me. Oh, well. Well, that was the world, world's first turboprop. Oh, yes, yes, yes. By, uh, designed by Sir Frank Whittle. Yeah, I did skip that. You're right. Uh, because uh, the, Bell, the Bell XP-59 era comet used two of those engines to be the first American jet in 1942. Mm-hmm. Um which they then put on automatic pilot, and it crashed into a barn. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, the autopilot, of course, is a setting which allows a, a aircraft to continue on a set course Yes. Uh, without adjustments. So a uh, very helpful uh, feature there that GE developed. Uh, and in 1945, they demonstrated the first commercial non-military use of radar, which they used to help uh, vessels navigate through dark conditions so that they wouldn't bump into stuff. As long as it's not farther than 20 miles away. Yeah. And also in 45, that's when we now have Wilson and Reed in place as executive leaders for GE. They've they've actually come back from the war effort, and now they are there to stay for the rest of their tenure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 46, you have the uh, J-47, which yep. became the most produced jet engine in history. Yep. Uh, 5,000 pound thrust, um, production. So, you know. Powerful engine there. And, uh, also that year, a GE scientist named Vincent Schaefer developed an interesting technique for areas that are suffering from drought. 
Yes, cloud seeding. Yes, he was the one who figured out that by seeding clouds, by putting in tiny particles in clouds for you water can... droplets to form around, you could make rain. Oh, I thought you could grow sunflowers in clouds. No. no. Oh. You must be playing a, a super advanced version of Plants vs. Zombies. <laughs> sky, sky Plants vs. Zombies. Sky Plants vs. Zombies. Yes. So, yeah, uh... that... Uh, that was another interesting development. In 47, uh, GE produces the first two-door refrigerator, which yes. has a, free, a separate door for the freezer. Yes. Before uh, they had developed the first hermetically sealed refrigerator, which yeah. was a nice invention. Um, this is an improvement on that technology. You had 7.5 cubic feet, uh, not big by today's standards, but uh, you know, it was pretty significant at the time. Yeah, and uh, also the fact that it had a separate door for the freezer meant that you didn't have to worry about defrosting the refrigerator all the time because uh, it had its own separate compartment. Yes, yeah, um, and it's important to note too, um, uh, and I, this just occurred to me. This is not something that uh, I found through research, but uh, we're talking about um, right after World War II, which in America was a time of enormous prosperity. Yes, you had a whole lot of people coming back from the war that the uh, American uh, manufacturing machine was completely geared up. Yeah. Um, the Americans produced, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, really don't intend it to be, boatloads and boatloads uh, of all kinds of weaponry. Uh, there were huge advancements in technology, uh, not just from GE, but from other cor- uh, corporations in the United States. And so as, as the... Uh, uh, the men came home from Europe and, and, uh, the Pacific theaters. Um, they found themselves in an opportunity to, to get more stuff than they had ever had before. All yeah. sorts of new things. Um, so this, these bursts in technology came at a perfect time. And, uh, I'm sure, again, this is not based on my reading. I'm sure that in no small part, this caused GE to grow significantly because they had invested in all these different areas, uh, especially home uh, appliances, small appliances. Um, and I'm sure they made uh, tons and tons of cash yeah. simply through being uh, having it available at the right time, geared up in the right way. Um, so this this was a huge time for them. So in introducing a, a two-door refrigerator freezer, that was brand new, and that would be something that people are going to want in yep. their homes. They also introduced – now, this was for commercial restaurants, not for homes, but they introduced an electronic oven that uh, was uh, – it, it was programmable in a sense and actually made an entire industry possible, something that maybe we shouldn't thank GE for, <laughs> the fast food industry. Yeah, they uh, they made custom uh, matching gear, uh, all sorts of different appliances that you would find in a fast food restaurant uh, for different types of cooking, toasters and fryers and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and uh, – yeah, I mean, the fast food industry really took off after the war was over as well. Yeah. Um, so you could gear up your stuff and have it look sweet, you know, have it all behind the counter where everybody could see it. It looked nice. Um, that was, it, you know, it added to the uh, the atmosphere in a fast food restaurant. Yeah. In 1950, uh, Wilson's. Such as it is. Yeah, I was about to say. I don't have a lot of atmosphere. Most of the fast food restaurants I've been in. in well, 19- I know, but if you, you went out, you know, for a date or something like that, it would. Uh, you know, I'm know. learning a lot about Chris on this podcast. In 1950, <laughs> Charles Wilson steps I, I down. I ain't as a complicated guy. Okay? <laughs> Charles Wilson stepped down as the president in 1950, and Ralph J. Cordner became the new president of GE. 
Uh, and in 51, they developed, the company developed the J79 military jet engine. Yes. Uh, and very I, popular military jet engine. I like the story that, that was on the GE's website about how when the engineers were testing the engine, they thought that their instruments must have been broken because the efficiency levels were way higher than they expected them to be. It's like, nah, that's not going to work. You know, this, this, that can't this, be right. This meter's broken. Go get me a new one. Uh, in 1952. <laughs> I think the gauge is broken. Yeah. <laughs> sir, sir, you've switched off your targeting computer. Uh, in 1952, uh, they built an appliance park facility in Kentucky. Which is great if you need to park your appliances. Yeah, no, and this is this was a, a company or a part of the company that was specifically dedicated to designing and producing appliances for the home. Oh man, uh, my notes are way off today. In 1953, they developed the Lexan polycarbonate resin. Oh man, Daniel W. Fox trying to come up with a better. How, how many times have we mentioned this scenario? Yeah. Trying to come up with a better wire enamel. Yeah, comes up with Lexan. Which, uh, if you know what Lexan is, is a very hard transparent plastic, um, which can be used in all sorts of things. This is another area that GE capitalizes on later. But, yeah, um, very, very useful plastic. Yep. Uh, 1954, they developed the first automatic portable dishwasher called? The Mobile Maid. Yes. So, um, yeah, a portable dishwasher. Uh, I'm not going to make any jokes on that either. In 1955... They developed the first micro miniature relay, and this was for uh, for aircraft and spacecraft. Yeah, and they're still in use. These, this is another technology GE developed that uh, still finds its way into today's aircraft and spacecraft. Yep. They also developed a method for creating artificial diamonds, uh, which are used in industrial applications like drilling. You know, they have diamond drill bits and stuff. Well, it, this was when they actually developed a technique to create them artificially. Yes, diamonds in this case are a grinder's best friend. Um, they they uh, use nice. these, <laughs> and we're talking about someone who's actually grinding stuff down, not a not a not a sandwich. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, you don't want uh, industrial diamonds in your diamonds sandwich. In your sandwich. No, bad idea. Um, but they are great for grinding stuff down. And as a matter of fact, uh, this is not uh, the only application of very very hard stuff that they uh, innovate in their chemical labs but we'll come to that later yeah yeah diamonds also very useful if you're going to create a doomsday device because they almost all have to have some <laughs> sort of diamond right there in the center to to focus the energy uh, you know what i'm talking about yes i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, or some so. sort of a, a chip that goes right. along with the diamonds yes yes but uh, my my um, this this the next thing that I, I want to talk about in sure. 1956, oh, a technology that will change the world this forever. Is the T-93? This is the T-93. It is not, as I first imagined, a very early Terminator. Or maybe it is, and I just don't know about it. Well, not, not you know, it's not if you're talking about uh, heart failure, possibly. <laughs> uh, again, I am not a very complex guy, and the invention of the first toast R oven, the toaster oven... Uh, which finds its way on many countertops and is a a prized possession in my home. I have mine up on a little pedestal with a light shining down. It's, it's a GE bulb, by the way, that shines right down on nice. it. Nice little 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 angelic choir sings the yes. three notes from NBC on there. Yes, in terms exactly. Of but uh, no, I. It's a useful appliance. Uh, you know what? You're not going to get any argument out of me. I don't own a toaster oven, but I have known the joys of a toaster oven. It's it's useful and it helps you cook your tater tots. 
Um, oh, good grief. All right, so they also that year created the Convair Skylark, which I I must admit does not truly compete with the Toastar oven for innovation. All yeah. it was was a commercial jet engine that was based off the J-79 military engine they had developed a few years earlier. Yeah. Okay, so so in a corporate in the corporate world here, yeah, you, you've got your very successful line of uh, Toastars that <laughs> that they put in homes. They're very popular with pirates as yes, well. Yes, they put are. it in the Toastar. Um, <laughs> Jonathan's taking a drink. I was hoping to make him spit tea no, across the room. not going to happen. Um, but you also have this very, very uh, businessy line of very expensive stuff that you're selling. Jet engines to the military and to commercial uh, aspects. So they yeah. are they are extremely successful in yeah. both of these. You could say that GE at this point has a diversified offering. Extremely. <laughs> Appliances for the home and jet engines for the military. And they're selling stuff to uh, corporations, too, that rely on uh, plastics and uh, chemicals, like the Noral resin developed in 1956 by Alan S. Hay of the Research Laboratory. Yeah, and it was a, this was an important development because this was a kind of plastic that still stay, stays strong even at high temperatures, which made it ideal for industrial use. Yes. You know, you, you wanted that was one of the problems with plastics is that, you know, as the temperatures increase, the plastic would become brittle or it would start to melt. Mm-hmm. It would it would just it would not be useful anymore. So, uh, there were some uh lots of industries actually that just could not really use that much plastic in what they did because it just wasn't stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this helped fix that problem in that there was, you know, for for certain applications this plastic could maintain its its integrity even at those high temperatures. Yes, no, no matter of bribing will cause it to melt. Um, <laughs> Very high integrity. Uh, Fifty seven. You've got the J ninety three, the successor to the uh, the other military jet engine that we talked about just a moment ago. Supersonic jets yes. use the J ninety three. They could Mach go three, yeah, three times the speed of sound. I just want to say Mach. Mach. Um, and uh, they did put that on the experimental XB seventy bomber. Yep. Um, so that year, they also opened the world's first licensed nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unlicensed nuclear power plants were, of course, all over the place at that point. Uh, you know, every little kid would, instead of operating a lemonade stand, would be like, Mom, I'm going to go out and uh, harvest some uranium and create a fission reactor in the backyard and have an unlicensed nuclear power plant. And they'd say, just be home before supper. I made all that up. Oh, in 57. <laughs> Still uh, in 57. In 57, my brother was born, and Robert H. Wentorf Jr. came up with Borazon. Yes, cubic boron nitrite. It apparently boron was not. nitrite, I should say. Yes. Not boron. Um, that's, that's a character in Lord of the Rings, actually. It's Boromir's <laughs> little cousin, Boron. He was not a very exciting I thought I was loopy. Um, No, this is the chemical I was talking about uh, or the substance I was talking about a few moments ago. Um, It is an artificial substance, but it's second in hardness only to diamonds. Yes, and it can can operate at temperatures higher than diamonds can. Yes, diamonds will burn at a certain point, believe it or not. Yes. Um, I imagine that has to be really hot. Pretty darn hot, I think is the technical term. Yes, but uh, Borazon will will, uh, will continue to... Exist at at those temperatures yeah, and higher. It does not burn at that temperature. Um, yeah. Should I go into the next exciting home appliance? Well, before we do, there's something else that happens. You mean in 1958? Yes. So in 1958, something else happens too that I should mention before okay. we go into the appliance. So in 1958, Philip D. Reed steps down as chairman. Mm-hmm. So Cordner, who was the president, now becomes the chairman and CEO. 
Okay. All right. So he transitions into the chairman and CEO role and Gerald L. Philippe comes in as president. Now, this is important because it starts to show a transition from the way their corporate structure was um, in the earlier days. Eventually, we're going to get to a point where you have one person as chairman and CEO and you don't have a president anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're coming up to that point. We're not there yet, but uh, that's why we've you know we've now got a guy who's transitioned out of president to become chairman and CEO, and a new fellow has come in as president. And now, what was the amazing invention that GE introduced in 1958? The electric can opener. Yes, dogs and cats everywhere learn to come scampering into your kitchen whenever this device is activated. Uh, which is funny for two reasons. One, um, my cats do that, and the cat food we have doesn't come in that kind of a can. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, GE makes that joke on its own website. Does it really? Yes, it does. I the didn't timeline, even see that. Uh, on the timeline, I actually went to. Uh, it says, and dogs and cats everywhere learn a new sound. And and I, I thought I was being funny and original. It turns out that I was making a reference to something I hadn't even read. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's not funny. No, um, it's fair enough. Uh, and and we are we are teasing GE sort of about the uh, the toaster oven and the can opener and these appliances, but uh, they really were fulfilling their goal of trying to make life easier for people through electrical stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. When you compare it to something like the second hardest material known to man, um, or you know something something that that is only uh, outstripped by diamonds, that sort of stuff, it seems it seems you know tiny and silly in comparison. But or jet engines, or jet engines, or or all yeah. the medical equipment that yeah. GE makes. But the truth is, is that th- these things did make life easier. Hey, I got an electric can opener. I have an electric can opener too, and I use it. Well, I'm a left hander. Okay, so a left-hander trying to use a can opener. That's a good point. All right, guys, if you if you want to know an exercise in frustration, <laughs> find a left-hander and ask them about using a manual can opener, even left-handed can openers. But I digress. Anyway, uh, these they were making stuff that really did make life easier, and we take it for granted now. Yeah, I mean, it, we do. You think about like. Think about how long it takes you to heat something up using a microwave, for example. Mm-hmm. And then think about how long it would take you if you were to use a conventional oven or range top for that. Uses Heck, a lot more energy as well. That's also true. But yeah, look at any directions. Like if you ever buy any frozen food yeah. that has directions for either using the oven versus a microwave, look at the amount of time well, <laughs> between those two. Okay. Well, here you go. You got GE pioneering – Refrigeration. Yep. Which makes frozen food possible. Yep. Uh, or, or practical, let's yes. say. Um, you can go to the Antarctic right. if you want to. Right. Um, yeah, where everything's frozen food. Well, they, you know, used to bring in ice from other, from other climates. Yes. Uh, or, or, you know, they'd have to make it at these, uh, complicated refrigeration places. Yeah, pack um, it in sawdust and then move it across as fast yeah. as they could. So, so, you know, this, they're, they're, the technologies that they're working on make frozen food possible, and then when you you get it home, you can store it, uh, and then you uh, you know open it up and and stick it in an oven, which they helped uh, pioneer, and then the uh, the magnetrons for microwave ovens. So e- either way, yeah, <laughs> uh, this is something frozen food in your home is really made practical by you know people like GE. Yep, very true. 
So yeah, no, I don't mean to to make fun. We're teasing because it's such a uh, compared it, to the other yeah, stuff. Compared to the other stuff, it seems so so yeah. minuscule. Like, yeah, it's a big deal yeah. in a way. And they also did uh, something, another lighting innovation in '59 yep. with the uh, the halogen light. Yes, the halogen lamps. So again, another uh, way to light areas. They were able to create very small bulbs that could put out quite a bit of light. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of desk lamps use halogen bulbs. Yes, uh, less common than they used to be. All yeah. those uh, the stand lamps, the torch lamps that they used to have in the 90s. Yeah, and there, there's some more now that are coming out with uh, things like LED bulbs, but mm-hmm. hey, you know what? We'll Jeans get to that has got in their finger in that pie, too. Yeah, we'll get into that. Oh, yeah, and then uh, 1960, the Discovery 13, which, yes. as it turns out, are not several of our parent company's employees. Nope. Discovery 13 is, uh, well, it's, technically, it's a satellite. Yes. And it was uh, the, the it ended up being the first, uh, the reentry vehicle for the 13 ended up being the first one retrieved after it was in orbit, first man-made object in orbit that was uh, successfully retrieved. Yes, not like a Sputnik, which is still out there somewhere. I think. Actually, I think Sputnik. Did it crash? I think. I think it crashed. I think okay. it burnt up and crashed. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but, but they didn't retrieve it. Right. No, that one was not retrieved. Nor was it necessary to retrieve it because the Sputnik really didn't do anything other than beep. Exactly. So, uh, but this. This satellite orbited the Earth 17 times within about 27 hours and took lots of uh, color photos of yes. the Earth mm-hmm. from space. Yes. Um, and it was uh, from up, up to 700 miles, so not especially far out. Yeah. Space nuts. Um, 1961. Automatic toothbrush. Yes. Made possible by uh, smaller motors and rechargeable batteries. Yes, rechargeable batteries. Very important. Uh, and, That'll come in handy what? later. Automatic toothbrush is nothing to sneeze at. I love my automatic toothbrush. Yes. Uh, it's 1962. They open a space center in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Yes. Because uh, in 62, you know, we're talking about the space race now. So we're talking yep. about the, that time in the United States history where they were, we were really uh, uh, geared up against the Soviet Union to try and land men on the moon and, and be out in space before them. And, you know, some races the Russians won and some races the Americans won and, uh, GE played a big part in that. They they actually produced a lot of the electrical systems and uh, sensors that would be used on in, during the space race. Yeah, um, and this uh, also produced the uh, the famous quote: uh, uh, "Houston, we have a problem." No, I'm sorry. This is Valley Forge. You want? Uh, and they, you know, never mind. Um, and they also in '61. Not, not all of our jokes are are, are surefire hits. No, no, I, I changed it in midair, which I shouldn't do. Uh, the Luca Locks lamp. Um, yep. Which uh, you probably haven't heard of. They use it in factories and in outdoor environments. But uh, they again, this is another chemical uh, breakthrough for them because they used uh, translucent ceramics yes. to make this light possible. Uh, you know, long lived light that uh, they could put in these environments and leave there for a while. And the ceramics were really important in that they also kept in the heat mm-hmm. generated by the lamp because otherwise running these lamps would just make the whole area really hot. Mm-hmm. So the ceramics were uh, there really to kind of keep the heat in, but they had to be you know, transparent. They had to be at least translucent to let light yeah. through because yeah. otherwise you just have a really hot ceramic cup in a glass jar, which wouldn't really be terribly useful. Do not want. Uh, the, the, in 1962, they also GE also had another... Uh, invention come out. Uh, a GE engineer by Ro- the name of Robert Hall invented a semiconductor injection laser, also known as a solid state laser. I am so impressed that you said it twice the normal way. 
What's that? Oh, laser instead of laser. Yes. See, if you hadn't pointed it out, I you might have gotten away with a whole episode without me doing that. I, I'm surprised that you didn't talk about the uh, superconducting magnet that they came up to. Well, they also there's also that as well. I mine because I pulled my notes from so many different sources. Mine are in a slightly different order than yours. Uh, then uh, you know you you grabbed your sources, I grabbed mine. So the next one I had was this uh, this laser, <laughs> which by the way, it uh, solid state laser. Yes, which which is important. It's what forms the basis of technology like CD-ROM drives and mm-hmm. DVD-ROM drives, where you have this solid-state laser as part of the system. It, it reduced the size that you would need to create a, a laser. Perhaps if you had one of those diamonds we talked about earlier, then you could have your doomsday device. Yes. You could take over the entire tri-state area. So you want to talk about some – I'm not going to do Doofenshmirtz. You're going to talk about some uh, some magnets? Uh, yes. Well, one in particular. Yes. Uh, they they uh, came up with a superconducting magnet that uh, – which is amazing to me to think about. 100,000 gauss. That's a pretty big magnet. Yep. Um, which is funny that I say that. Uh, to me, at least, because that's only the beginning. Yeah. Uh, the reason you might be interested in this, uh, we haven't talked about uh, GE's uh, medical stuff much um, on this particular podcast. And the last one, we we talked about how they were on the forefront of X-rays. Yes. Um, right as uh, uh, Mr. or yeah, Mr. Röntgen. Yeah. I have such a trouble with his name. Uh, came up with or, or realized that X-rays existed and what they could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, GE almost immediately, uh, within the next year, came up with a machine that could produce X-rays and was used for medical imaging. And uh, it started making improvements on this. This giant, huge, enormous magnet that they came up with, superconducting magnet, uh, is going to play a huge part in GE's medical technology going forward because it is this type of magnet that they're going to use in their magnetic resonance uh, devices yes. of different types yes. later. So but not yet. Uh, I've got two other things to round out of going up to 1967. Uh, one is in 1963, which is when Fred J. Borch became the president and CEO, uh, and he repl- Borch. and he replaced Cordner, and uh, uh, that's the same year that GE developed the self-cleaning oven, the P7. I had a, uh, um, I actually just replaced in my father's house a, uh, a subsequent oven that followed that with the uh, self-cleaning stuff, uh, which is a, a pyrolytic system. Which basically means that you lock down the darn thing and heat it up until it just burns the stuff off, uh, which really smells terrible. Um, however, the engineers involved were granted around 100 patents yep. for the technologies that they used in creating that oven. So that's a big deal. And in 67, Fred J. Borch becomes the chairman and CEO. So he transitions from president and CEO to chairman and CEO. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that brings me to the end of this era. Do you have something else you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, Jacob G. Rabatin, or Rabatin? Rabatin, in 1968, uh, came up with a high-efficiency X-ray phosphor. All right. Um, yes. and, and this is not uh, exciting, exciting. However, it did improve the efficiency of X-ray machines that they created um, that would reduce – you know, you, you guys listening all probably know that X-rays – it's not a good idea to be exposed to X-rays um, at high levels. Right. You, you want to be – you want the picture to be taken and then that's it. 
just expose the film and let's get it over with because it can be dangerous. Yes, it's ionizing radiation. Um, this technology uh, that I just spoke of a moment ago reduces patient exposure to a quarter of what they were being exposed to before. So that's significant. Yes, definitely. That, that's much safer for the patient uh, and a definite improvement in technology, but not, you know – Particularly exciting for the man on the street. Yeah, unless that man on the street has just broken a leg. Yes. Which, so. you get that man off the street. Yeah. Not glamorous, but uh, very, very important. Yes. So this wraps up episode two of the GE story. We will finish with episode three. So uh, stay tuned for our next episode where we will conclude and talk about all sorts of stuff, starting with a short visit to the moon. And uh, if you guys have any suggestions for <laughs> topics we should cover, you had it. You held it together so well until like three seconds after I did that. No, if you guys have any suggestions for topics that we should cover here on Tech Stuff, please let us know. You can write us an email. That address is techstuff at discovery.com or send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. You can find us there. We are, in fact, there. We use the handle techstuffhsw. Track us down, follow us, befriend us, become one of our bosom buddies, and let us know what you would like us to talk about in future episodes. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Forks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?